This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of Bendy Bodies, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you state-of-the-art medical information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is Amanda Blackman, board-certified specialist in orthopedic physical therapy, head physical therapist for Atlanta Ballet, and dry needling instructor. Hello, and thanks so much for being here today. Hi, guys. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you and would love to hear first a little bit more about your background. Okay. I grew up as a dancer, but knowing that um, I really wanted to do physical therapy from an early age. So I went to the University of Georgia and majored in exercise and sports science and gerontology and then went to Emory University and got my doctorate of physical therapy in 2005. And then very quickly after graduating from Emory was really missing the dance world and performing arts. So I started taking courses and got certified in Pilates and um, dance medicine training so that I could go into performing arts medicine. And then very soon after that became interested in chronic pain and trigger points. So went through myopain seminars dry needling courses in 2009 and 2010. And I've been an instructor with them for about eight years now. So I'm really enjoying that. I get to travel all over the country and teach dry needling to physical therapists, chiropractors, physicians, nurse practitioners. So that's been really fun. And then my research interests really lie in hypermobility, performing arts medicine, pelvic floor dysfunction and dancers and dry needling and chronic pain. That is so awesome. And can you, what we really want to talk about today is dry needling. This is a, a subject that I think is going to be so useful for people. So can you start out by telling us what is dry needling? Yeah, it's interesting because they call it dry needling because we're using a needle that's not a hypodermic needle with an injection. So a lot of patients are familiar with pain injections, whether that be lidocaine or other substances, even steroid injections. But when we use dry needling, it's a solid, thin filament needle, similar to an acupuncture needle. Um, and we find an actual trigger point or not in the muscle. And we're looking for that trigger point to twitch and almost release when we put the needle into the muscle. So there's not an actual substance being injected. Okay. And how is that different from acupuncture? So similar tool, but very different methodology in the way of looking at a patient. So acupuncture really comes from a traditional Chinese medicine or Eastern approach. I'm not an acupuncturist, so I'll telling you what I know as far as um, the differences, but acupuncturists tend to look at meridians or chi lines or energy lines. They're looking at the body very holistically and looking at a more, um, Eastern based approach of balancing energy or balancing chi. 
It's wonderful for a lot of different things. Whereas healthcare practitioners who practice dry needling are typically coming from a more Western training. There are acupuncturists who also do dry needling, but physical therapists, physicians, chiropractors, nurse practitioners that practice dry needling are typically coming from a more Western training, looking at pain science, looking more specifically at pain referral patterns that have been established in the literature, and then also looking at other impairments that trigger points may cause like range of motion strength, um, motor planning issues, and using the needle to go after those more specifically. So you mentioned several different types of medical professionals that might use dry needling. So it sounds like it's something that crosses over a few different um, a few different descriptors and is not just for physical therapists or just for chiropractors, but is a tool that, that sort of the larger medical community could make use of. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Um, dry needling really came to the United States in the physical therapy world in the 90s. My mentor, uh, Jan Dermerholt, is a Dutch-trained physiotherapist and started dry needling here in the 90s and was the first trainer, I guess, of dry needling. Now there are many, many schools, but it really varies state to state on which healthcare practitioners are allowed to utilize dry needling within their scope of practice. So I believe right now the number for physios to use it is up to 36 states in the country. Um, and then sometimes athletic trainers can do it. Like for instance, where you are, Jen, in Texas, athletic trainers can dry needle. There are a few states where chiropractors can do it. And then physicians and nurse practitioners, I believe across the board can do dry needling. Interesting. So not every state allows physical therapists to do dry needling. You said, I think 36 out of 50. Correct. Don't quote me on that number, but it's somewhere <laughs> around there. There have actually been some pretty big territory wars across the country. So um, states like California, New York, I believe Oregon, Washington State, Hawaii, Pennsylvania, for various and sundry reasons have not allowed dry needling. Some of that is acupuncturists or chiropractors or physicians actually using political lobby to fight that. In other states, it it's not as big of a battle. It's just that there was originally written in their practice act that physical therapists can't pierce the skin. So it's, it kind of depends on what states have sort of taken it up as a fight they want to fight. And, um, you know, as a dry needling instructor, I'm hoping we can get it passed in all 50 states in the near future. Um, so, so what sort of issues might dry needling be used for then? Great question. So traditionally, it's really thought of a technique to treat pain directly. So Janet Travell, Dr. Janet Travell and Dr. David Simons wrote their very famous dry needling texts in the 80s um, and established pain referral patterns for almost every muscle in the body. So a lot of people just think of using dry needling for pain. But more current research has shown us that trigger points can actually have a greater effect on more impairments that healthcare practitioners might see. For instance, it can limit range of motion and flexibility in a muscle. It can cause a muscle to appear weak. It can make muscles or functional muscle groups have altered movement patterns. 
it can actually cause more um, autonomic type symptoms like feeling of fullness in the ear or even ringing in the ear or vertigo or crying of the eyes. So sometimes we're using it a bit more holistically to address symptoms like that. So it sounds like there is some sort of, I think what you were saying with the trigger points is that it starts sort of musculoskeletal for a lot of people in dealing with those issues, but it sounds like you're linking it also to possible nervous system uses as well. Absolutely. Nervous system, but then also GI symptoms, vestibular symptoms. It can really kind of cross the gamut as far as different presentations that patients are presenting with. And I see that even more in our hypermobile patients because they tend to have so many systems involved. Mm-hmm. A lot of times their trigger points can, treating their trigger points, I can get an even bigger effect because I'm addressing multiple systems at once. Mm-hmm. So if you're addressing multiple systems, whether advertently or, or inadvertently, right? Um, it's really helpful to have a big understanding of what population you're trying to work with specifically. Absolutely. And you mentioned with hypermobility, um, because people with hypermobility often have multi-systemic issues, it would be really helpful to have a good working understanding of people with hypermobility and their issues. So how might the hypermobile population react differently to dry needling in general? Great question. So I think, I don't know that this is established in the literature, but anecdotally, because I work with the population so much. Mm-hmm. I really think our hypermobile patients have more trigger points than the average patient. I almost imagine it's like our muscles are working overtime to try to hold our joints together because the joints aren't doing their job. So the muscles are, um, and I think that because they have more trigger points, they can also have more of the pain complaints, more of the systemic effects. For instance, we know that, um, trigger points in the abdominal wall, whether it be rectus abdominis, the obliques, transverse abdominis are typically indicative of some kind of underlying visceral dysfunction. We know that our hypermobile population have a lot of underlying both gynecological and or GI issues. So a lot of times those are going together and I might be addressing trigger points in the abdominal wall not only for their low back pain, but also to address low gastric motility or um, endometriosis type symptoms. How, how do you decide where to start? Because at least for my hypermobile <laughs> patients, like they have in general, like so many symptoms, so many different things going on and they all have trigger, trigger points, like tons of trigger points, it seems like. So do you kind of go with what is the biggest thing that they are presenting with on that day? Or once you've picked a course, you kind of stick with that course until you switch to something different? Or how do you approach that? That's a great question. Sometimes it's gut. (laughs) Sometimes I'm totally going off instinct. But when I'm teaching this to students, I tell them to start centrally. So a lot of times with a hypermobile patient that has widespread chronic pain, or maybe even a CRPS or something like that, I think of needing a window into the system. So a lot of times my go-to is actually the thoracic multifidi. If you think about that, those thoracic segments are sitting over the sympathetic chain, can have huge responses from the autonomic nervous system. So a lot of times I'll start there and think, let's just kind of calm this nervous system down 
see if we can get that thoracic spine moving a little better, the fascia around the thoracic spine moving a little bit better. Um, so a lot of times that's one of my go-tos. We know from the literature that upper trapezius is another great place to start with widespread pain. There's actually some research studies that show um, in a more fibromyalgia population, I'm using finger quotes there, um, that a single injection into the upper trapezius is enough to calm down that nervous system and calm down those pain pressure thresholds. So a lot of times I'll extrapolate that to dry needling, but I'll start with upper trap. Lumbar spine is another great place to start. And then if I'm looking at a patient that does have a lot of other visceral complaints, I'll start on the abdominal wall and not always with dry needling. So sometimes I'll start with just manual therapy and demonstrating to my patient, Hey, this is part of what's going on with you. So it's going to be part of our treatment plan. Mm -hmm. And how, and how many places might you dry needle in one visit? I tend to start pretty low because you always want to kind of gauge your patient and see how well they respond, um, and make sure that you don't flare them up or exacerbate and make their symptoms worse. And I found that a lot of my hypermobile patients really love the dry needling and they can almost get, um, a little addicted to it in the best possible way. Um, Guilty. But yeah, Dr. Bluestein really loves it. So I think starting slow and then gauging that response and making sure you're, you're following up with neuromuscular re-education, pain education, good quality pain-free movement is really important as well because you can go in and just needle the heck out of a patient Mm -hmm. They may feel really great for the time being, but then they're going to flare right back up because if you mm -hmm. don't retrain the system, it's going to go right back to its initial state. So a, a metaphor I use for a lot of my patients is when you have trigger points in your muscle, it's a lot like your computer going into the spinning wheel of death, right? <laughs> like the pinwheel that just spins and spins and spins. Your computer can't move forward. It can't move backward. It's just stuck. So for a muscle the same thing. That muscle can't relax. It can't contract like it's supposed to. It can't stretch like it's supposed to. It can't activate like it's supposed to. So taking a needle and getting rid of that trigger point is sort of like hitting control alt delete on the system. But by the same token, if you just reset your computer and you don't do a software upgrade, your computer is just going to go right back to where it was. So that's how kind of how I treat my, um, patients and explaining to them the importance of regaining those motor movement patterns, finding good pain-free movement that is helpful to them is sort of like their software upgrade. We can't just have them on the table, dry needling, dry needling, dry needling. We have to make sure we're balancing that with other treatment modalities. And, and you mentioned myofascial release, which is another like passive modality, right? So dry needling is a passive thing on the part of the patient, right? So correct. So probably that's also, you're, you want them actively engaged. You want them re-establishing a positive relationship with their body. And okay, so all that makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of kinesio tape as well, or different kinds of taping methods. So I think of following up my dry needling and releasing those muscles with good movement education, which might be assisted by tape or bracing or other kinds of external support as well.
That, that's so important, um, what you have been talking about. I, I know anecdotally for me and the dancers that I work with when they go get dry needling, I know um, there's a, several different providers that I work with in the area that do dry needling. And the ones who aren't used to hypermobility will get, I think, a little excited at all the tight muscles that they find. Oh, yeah. And they'll be like, oh, we're going to release this and this and this and this. And then I talk about how when something is released in a hypermobile person's body, it's like the rest of the things just do a runner and they just go, they're like, we're free. And then different muscles just grab on tighter to try mm -hmm. to hold on. And what you mentioned earlier about how, um, how, how important it is for the body to stabilize the joints and how often we do that to the detriment of overusing some muscles. And so once these muscles are released, there's no structure in place for them to use. So it's so important um, from what I have seen um, as a non-medical professional to, to approach the hypermobile po population slowly, as you mentioned, and starting with just a few things or else I have seen them bounce back the next day, maybe in a different part of their body, mm -hmm. much tighter and, and having some sort of a flare. So I love um, that you're recognizing that there is a difference and that it does need to be approached slowly and with caution because it's such a valuable tool. But if a hypermobile person experiences it without that framework, without the software upgrade that you mentioned, um, without that retraining, um, then they may walk away going, oh, it was no good for me. It really didn't work well. And they were just missing part of that experience, part of that rehabilitation experience. They got the first part, but didn't necessarily have the rest of it to go with it. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I, I have full disclosure, I've made that mistake, even with my own business partner who has a very hypermobile shoulder over needle that shoulder and the humeral head just sort of falls out. And it's like, Oh, that was a little too much. So I would encourage practitioners who are working with hypermobiles to also be kind to yourself. You will make that mistake. It's a very fine line of doing too little or too much. And you know, tape helps everything. You can just keep that right back up. <laughs> That's right. Just, just tape it up for a little bit. Well, so speaking of this, how do, how would someone find uh, a practitioner, a good practitioner for dry needling? It's a great question. Um, there are now over 30 schools of dry needling in the United States and they all approach things a little bit differently. So I'm, obviously biased because I've been with my particular company for a very long time and they were the first company in the United States, but there are also excellent schools across the country. So it kind of depends on where you are, I think, as to which training programs kind of have a hold in that region. Um, the American Physical Therapy Association has a find a PT site. It's just findapt.org, I believe where you can search and you can use dry needling as one of the keywords that you search for, which can be helpful. Um, I also think talking to other patients and getting a specific referral can be huge because I've had patients come in to me and they say, oh, I've had dry needling, it didn't work. And I say, okay, well, tell me a little bit about that dry needling experience. And they were dry needled by someone who's trained completely differently than I am. So some of the dry needling schools use more um, what we call indwelling needles. They put lots of needles in. They might even hook them up to electrical stem, which is fine. It's just not 
the style that I'm trained in. So it might be a very different experience for that patient to see someone who's trained differently or see someone who's, who's accustomed to working with hypermobile patients. So a lot of times it's word of mouth, but there are different websites you can go to, to look for a practitioner. I would say asking the healthcare providers in your area or asking other patients where they've had positive experiences is probably the most valuable. That makes sense. And likewise, to find a physical therapist who is likely more knowledgeable about hypermobility, do you have any suggestions for that? I think then looking at the performing our special interest group through the APTA, they have a provider search engine. I Adams, the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science has a provider search engine. So a lot of times it's sort of cross-checking those like, okay, this person does dry needling, this person does hypermobility and where do those two intersect? Sure. And, and if a hypermobile artist wants to try dry needling as a part of their care, um, what kind of information should they share with their practitioner? They should make sure their practitioner knows that they're hypermobile and how they've responded to other manual therapy interventions in the past. So patients are very intuitive. And I think especially our hypermobiles tend to know their bodies very well. So I've had patients come into me and say, Hey, if you're going to address my QL, make sure you do it on both sides because it tends to throw me off if you only do manual therapy on one side, just anecdotal things like that. So I think previous experiences with manual therapy or um, other types of intervention, as much information as you can give your physical therapist or healthcare provider about that is only going to help them. And it's up to the the PT or whoever you're seeing to actually listen and take in that information and try to apply it to the patient that's in front of them. Sure. And, and jumping on to that, um, you mentioned talking about your experience with dry, with dry needling in the past for the hypermobile person, you mentioned it's so multi-systemic um, is sharing other information medically that that you think might be part of your hypermobility also helpful talking about other issues that you might have. Absolutely. If you have autonomic symptoms or POTS or GI issues or um, urogynecological issues, all of those are really important. For instance, if I have a patient on my table who has a history of POTS and I'm needling cervical spine, upper trap, SCM, any of those muscles that might be involved in that blood pressure regulation or vestibular um, hyper or hypofunction, I'm going to be extra careful. It's not that I'm not going to needle them, but I'm going to go slow. I'm going to continually monitor their response to what I'm doing. When we're done dry needling, we're going to sit up very slowly. We're going to regulate our system. We're not just going to hop off the table and walk across the room. So I think having that knowledge and, you know, just being a little more kid gloved with those types of patients can be helpful for the practitioner and the patient that's on the table. That makes sense. And are there situations where dry needling would not be helpful or might not be helpful? 
Um, absolutely. It's definitely not a cure-all, right? So I'm using it as an additional tool in my larger toolbox, but there are patients that I do avoid needling. Some patients have um, metal allergies to the needles. So that can be an issue if they have really high skin sensitivities. Uh, localized or systemic infections are another issue where you may not want to dry needle. You may want to use more manual techniques to you to address those trigger points. Um, we typically don't dry needle in the first trimester of pregnancy, just because even though there's no association with um, spontaneous miscarriage, the incidence of miscarriage is so high in that first trimester of pregnancy that I tend not to dry needle then unless it's a patient who's had a lot of experience with dry needling before. Um, Patients with bleeding disorders, so whether they are um, have low clotting levels or they're on some type of anticoagulant medication, whether it's related to hypermobility or not, there are certain muscles we tend to avoid just because we can't apply direct hemostasis and we don't want to risk that patient having a bleeding episode. I'm trying to think of other contraindications to dry needling. Some patients are just afraid of needles. And if they truly have a fear of needles, treat them manually. It's not worth battling that when we have other tools in our toolbox. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's a perfect lead into the next thing I was going to ask, which is um, what about the patient who does have um, concerns about breaking the skin or, or you have concerns about they're at higher risk for infection. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you, can you, can you dive into that just a little bit more, um, especially in reference to, you mentioned about metal allergy and patients who might have, you know, a lot of allergies and potentially are in the mast cell disorder. Disorder. Mm -hmm. yeah, there aren't a lot of incidences of infection being caused by dry needling. However, there have been some case studies of say a patient was dry needled and then put in a dirty whirlpool. Mm. They got a skin infection. We also know that postoperatively, you always have the risk of that joint. Say if it's a joint replacement, a total knee, a total hip, you always have a higher risk of that joint becoming septic and getting an infection. So different schools teach different timelines of say you might avoid needling directly around a knee replacement for at least six to eight weeks, or you want to make sure that that skin and tissue is thoroughly healed and showing absolutely no signs of infection, no redness, no warmth, no swelling, no fever, no streaking up the leg, et cetera, before you would dry needle in that area. So I think it's really on a patient case by case basis. Um, most practitioners don't alcohol swab the skin anymore because some of the newer research is saying that that's actually taking away the external, the first barrier to infection, which is our natural oils on the skin and actually drying out the skin. But other people will say, oh my gosh, I'm, I feel so much better if you do go ahead and alcohol swab my skin. So again, it's on a case by case basis. And I'm treating the patient that's in front of me. I think it's really about educating the patient, 
answering their questions thoughtfully and thoroughly to make sure they're completely comfortable with the procedure. And, it, and it's really good that you mentioned about um, if someone like, for example, has had a knee replacement because, you know, everything is connected in the body. I know, you know, when I was doing anesthesia in the operating room and somebody would come in for heart surgery and I would be talking to them and realize that they had a potentially infected tooth that they had not mentioned to their surgeon and all of a sudden now we have to revisit, are we gonna put in this artificial valve? You know, right. so if you go in for a PT visit and you have an infected tooth or you have some infection going on elsewhere in the body, that's also a good thing to, to mention. Because Absolutely. Yeah, we want to know, like, even if my patient feels like they're coming down with a cold and has swollen lymph nodes, I'm not going to needle them that day. There's just no reason to add in an extra layer of potential infection or potential complication when we do have other tools available. Sure. That's great. Um, so is there, I, I feel like you have covered a lot of information in a short amount of time. Thank you for being so um, clear cut and succinct because I've definitely learned a lot. Was there anything else that you wanted to share about dry needling in the hypermobile population? I would say that maybe not hypermobiles in general, but dancers in particular have tend to have very high pain thresholds. And again, they tend to love the dry needling so you want to be careful not to overdo, to really use your clinical reasoning skills as a healthcare provider and make sure that you're fully addressing that patient and not just dry needling because some they'll come in just for that. So I think that's going to help the community at large. If we make sure that dry needling is being used as only one piece of a larger plan of care and treatment plan for um, that community because they do tend to get a little addicted. <laughs> it just feels good. <laughs> it does. It's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so let me ask you this. I have one more thought after you saying that. Is dry needling something that a lot of people use for chronic pain or is it something that most people go to for musculoskeletal first and it's just now being talked about for chronic pain or, or where is it with that? No, I think it's, it's both. I think, um, previously it was more of a chronic pain modality. And now we're really seeing in the literature that it can be extremely useful for more acute injuries. There was actually a great study they did in New Jersey where they were using dry needling in an emergency room along with I think classical music, I'll have to find it. Um, but they were able to reduce their opioid prescriptions by 50% by utilizing dry needling techniques for acute type things. You figure the patient that throws their back out or um, has an acute migraine or acute neck pain. And so we are seeing it starting to be used in a more um, acute population very effectively. That's really cool. I have high hopes for where this is going to go for the general <laughs> population. That's awesome. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? It's great. So I have a website. It's mandydancept.com, I believe. Um, I'm also on Instagram. And then my other business, along with my business partner, Emma Faulkner, we just opened last September is Atlanta Dance Medicine. 
So atlantadancemedicine.com, we have an Instagram as well and teach uh, dance medicine courses. And then my company that I teach dry needling for is a great source of information. So myopainseminars.com is on the internet and there are some good frequently asked questions and resources for patients, information about chronic pain, information about dry needling. And then there's also a source there where you can see different rulings in different states where dry needling is allowed, which is really helpful, I think, for patients because they can say, okay, I'm in California. It's not allowed by physical therapists here. Is there a way for me to find maybe an acupuncturist that also does dry needling and find some different resources that way? That's great. That is very helpful. On the Myopain website, so it's spelled M-Y-O pain, right? On the Myopain website, they probably also have um, any practitioner that certifies specifically in myopain also, right? So even if they're a physician or a nurse practitioner or whatever, they would be on there. We had a website change during COVID. <laughs> so that functionality is there. It is not hundred percent up to date, ah. um, but I am also really good at remembering who I've trained and where. So if, if patients do, if they're having trouble finding a practitioner, Um, they're welcome to email me or find me on Instagram and I can try to find them somebody based on their zip code. And I should have um, clarified at the beginning when I was raising my hand and saying that I, that I am addicted to dry needling. My physical therapist was trained by you and she is wonderful and um, does it very selectively. I mean, she's, you know, it's definitely not at every session. It's just specifically certain times that she's like, I think today we should dry needle. And it's been very helpful. And I think in some ways, I don't know if you find this with your patients, Mandy, but it's almost like that acute pain of the needling because it is painful. It can be very painful. Yeah. And it, and depending on where they're going and stuff like that, but it's almost like then afterwards the, the release and the kind of like, there's, there's something that changes afterwards where it's like, yeah, okay, now it's sore, but it feels better somehow. I don't really, it's hard to put into words almost, but um, for me personally, I've, there's been times where it hasn't really changed much, but there's been other times where it definitely has. And I do believe that it matters very much what all is being done surrounding that and how it's being utilized, when it's being utilized and, and all of that. Yeah. And how you're following up. And I think it's impatient. It's important for patients to know that too. So when you do have a trigger point or a knot in the muscle, we know that there are actually excessive levels of pain chemicals inside that knot. And when you put a needle into the knot and that muscle twitches and then releases those pain chemicals are dispersed into the surrounding tissue, which is why we think you get that yes, pain relief, but also sort of a post needling soreness or achiness that can be a little bit more widespread than the acute focal pain you may have been having when you walked in. Um, it's important for patients to know that that's very normal. Mm -hmm. Typically it goes away in 24 to 48 hours. Some patients don't have any soreness at all, but other patients will have soreness for a lot longer. And that can mean that maybe you were over-treated or even under-treated. So again, there's a fine line there of knowing how much to do, especially with a patient who's hypermobile. Right. Right. Because we know that people that are hypermobile are also more prone to anxiety. So we don't want people to be like, oh, I'm sore. Oh, this is bad. And then getting more anxious, which is going to make the pain worse, which is going to make the anxiety worse. So we want to use 
all of this education too as a way of being able to have all of these things as successful as they possibly can be um, because we're armed with the information that will help reduce that anxiety and help really help us to understand what's happening in our bodies and, and all of that. So. Absolutely. And arming these patients with ways to treat trigger points themselves as well, because the needle is not the only tool. So sure. using foam rollers, using pinky balls, using the Theracane, there's all these different products and ways to treat trigger points. And I think giving patients that education is only going to empower them to help treat themselves as well so mm -hmm. that they're not completely dependent on the passive therapies of their PT or whoever else is treating them. Mm -hmm. And I do see um, the dancers who that I work with who get the most out of PT dry needling um, are the ones where the PT says, okay, remember this? So here's a lacrosse ball you get into the middle of rehearsals or whatever, here's where you're going to try to address it yourself if it comes up again. Now let's talk about why you keep having this one spot be an issue. And yes. let's talk about what support system you've got in place. Um, let's say they have to have their FHL needled all the time. So what's not that any dancer ever overuses that, right? <laughs> let's talk my about my favorite what, muscle to needle. <laughs> let's talk about what might be happening instead and what we should be using instead. And so it's that it's that piece of the puzzle, as you mentioned yeah. earlier, and being and empowering the patients to take over that self-care as much as they can, right? And and making sure that they're not just stuck or addicted, as you said, to coming in and getting the needles and running out the door without trying to affect a real and lasting change. Absolutely. Yep. Well, we have really enjoyed today. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we have been speaking with Mandy Blackman. Mandy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and to share your expertise with us today. Thank you so much for having me, ladies. This was so much fun. <laughs> we really appreciate it. We, yes. I can say that I learned a lot, even though like I've been needled. I've spoken with you about dry needling for, I think, Four hours was our last conversation, some of which was about dry needling, some was about other things, of course, but um, I still, I, yeah, this was super informative, so we really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I've loved being here. Thank you for all the great work you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being our guest. We'll see everybody next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at bendy underscore bodies and our website is www.bendybodies.org. If you want to follow Bendy Bodies founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at jennifer.milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, and her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.